Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss and Cage Podcast. So usually you guys know I go with my gut, and my gut is telling me that this episode is going to be very interesting, right? So you also, you also know that I always name whoever I'm interviewing with a particular nickname. So the nickname I'm going to deem this individual is the Community Do-Gooder Boss. And so Sam, why don't you go ahead and tell our audience a little bit more about who you are and why am I naming you the Community Do-Gooder Boss? Yeah, no, and it's so funny there because Microsoft Office doesn't recognize do-gooder as a word. I'm like, it exists because I am here (laughs) and I make my own words up. Uh, I'm an individual and there's five ways that I can describe me or five things that really make up my DNA. And they are servant leadership, story sharing, activator igniter, champion enabler, and community do-gooder. All five of those become the essence of how I'm able to help individuals, teams, organizations, educational institutions, and nonprofits in becoming at a higher level. But that's also made me into a speaker, storyteller, mentor, coach, educator, writer, and blogger, uh, entrepreneur, problem solver, and a community activator. And all of it also guides me to this aspect of to never be a bystander in life. I've worked with about 45 nonprofits to get them to, you know, start thinking more entrepreneurially as opposed to just on the, on the verge of what they always do is waiting on grants, waiting on donations and things. So I've dedicated my life, whether to the individual or to organizations like nonprofits to really be present for them, to help them where they need to be. Nice. Nice. So, I mean, that, that, that is so compacted with so much goodness and richness inside of it, right? And I think, you know, you kind of define yourself in three to five words, but at the same time, you, you, you let a little bit more down like the education path. So let's go into your historical history a little bit, right? Yeah. So you're in Canada, Yep. but you're of Indian descent mm-hmm. and your parents were raised where exactly? Where, where were they Fiji, born? Right? Fiji Islands, which Fiji is near Island. Australia. Yeah, yeah. near so, Australia. So think about like like for anyone that understands, you know, geo a little bit, like these are on the opposite sides of, of the spectrum, right? So how 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 have you kind of molded these things together in into where you are right now? Exactly. And I think that a lot of people struggle with this concept of identity. I mean, I'm a British-born Canadian. Parents come from Fiji Islands, which is near Australia, but my ancestral roots go to India. And I've and, I had never been to India for the longest time. But people would ask you this question. What part of India are you from? Because visibly, I look like I'm Indian. And I'm like, oh, I was born in England, raised in Canada. They're like, no, 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 your parents, what part of India? And I'm like, well, my parents actually are from Fiji. And then they're like, are you Indian? And it's like, well, my grandparents are. But we try to label. We try to, for our own purposes and needs, try to compartmentalize individuals to help ourselves better understand what's the ethnicity, what's the cultural background. And 
I went to India for the very first time for dual purposes. One was to find my ancestral roots, and really all I had was a faded photograph and very little information. And it was an epic journey in that sense. And, you know, for those who are here, this is a picture that I have. It's a faded orange, wow. hardly noticeable picture of people from our village that we were separated from for generations. So I took this faded photograph to India with very little information. We thought we knew the name of the village, the town it's close to, and the district. But it was, the, the journey was also about finding my own self, my own identity. And, you know, what I found is that I always compartmentalized my life. So in India or Indian cooking, there's a, there's a dish and it's a tali. So it's a platter segmented with bowls and dishes so that they never mix. So... My tali was made up of British, Canadian, Indian, Fijian, but also for 11 years, I played in an Irish military pipe band. So maybe there's a little bit of Irish chutney on the side as well. But by going to India, my realization is uh, I'm not a tali. I'm not this segmented dish. I'm kichiri. And kichiri is this beautiful rice dish that's a very staple comfort food in Indian cooking, you go to your fridge, you pull whatever vegetables you have, mix the, chop them up, mix it up with the rice, add your spices and flavor, but it's a blend of flavors. And it made me realize I am a blend of flavors, but so is everybody else. We are all a blend of flavors. And then I documented this journey to find my ancestral roots and myself in a book that I call Lost and Found, Seeking the Past and Finding Myself. And it, it it's a beautiful story that, but finding my ancestral roots, but also finding my own identity. Wow. Wow. I think, I think that, that that's a great way of looking at it. Cause you know, like with my ancestors, right. We're, we're from the Island of Trinidad, which is yeah. part of like the whole West Indies. So like our staple dish would be Palau, which is essentially like peas yes. and rice. So it's very similar to, to what you're describing. So I, like you're saying it, First of all, my mouth is watering, right? <laughs> Second of all, I'm like, I love this guy. <laughs> he understands exactly what a melting pot really should be. So, yeah. I mean, you're taking like the concept of a melting pot and you're bringing it to the general public in a different way by telling your story. Yeah. So how do you take that and, and, and convert it into a business? Like what is your business around this philosophy? Well, all of this resonates around those five things I started and shared right at the beginning uh, about how it gives me the strength to then go forward and support people because the writing and the writing of the book and this identity piece I've discovered becomes the mechanism that I use a lot of in my in my either teaching at university or speaking at conferences or even one-on-one -on -one mentorship is the art of storytelling and getting people to share their stories. And it's it's actually really interesting because I've had people tell me, you know, your 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 book or your story loved it and it was great. And the fact that you know you were able to find your, your grandfather's house and your identity. But you know what, Sam, my ancestors come from Sicily and you know, we have no records whatsoever and I will never find my roots. <clears throat> and my comment back to them was, but, but is there something that is drawing you to Sicily? And they're like, well, yeah, I'd like to go and experience it. And I said, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to discover your, the house or the village or street that you're 
ancestors lived on or left. When you're walking the streets in Sicily, does it feel right? Does it feel like, yeah, this is a little bit of my essence, my background. And all of this has helped with regards to pushing it forward into the mentorship and coaching, into the teaching, uh, more writing and sharing. It becomes a cornerstone as one of the uh, pillars that makes up my foundation. So, I mean, I think I think that, that's a hell of a story. And I think you are a great storyteller. You know, I had an opportunity to, to listen to some, some of the audiobook version of your book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it kind of led me down this rabbit hole of like, okay, this dude has a very interesting story. Like, what else has he done? What else has he created, right? So right. let's talk about like your TEDx talk. For, I think it was like, I think on YouTube, it's like 2011. So it's an old TEDx talk, but it's an evergreen. Like the topics that you were talking about then is still very relevant today. So let's talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, no, and I was asked to do, well, I've done two TEDx's. The first one was on personal storytelling. It was about, when I was asked to do the first TEDx, I was thinking of the topic, and people said, look, you tell stories. How do I tell, you know, how can I tell stories? And I thought, okay, let me break it down. And what I did was I looked at it, and uh, acronyms for me are really great, because I find acronyms make a powerful statement, but easier to remember. And I remember coming up with the idea that to do storytelling, I want to share with people how it's about discovering the extraordinary in the ordinary. Uh The idea is we go in autopilot through our lives and we're not paying attention to the the things that are around us, the, the triggers that are around us that actually would unlock extraordinary. And extraordinary doesn't have to be epic. It can be these small things. So I narrowed it down to these five words and I called it Carpe, as in carpe diem. Carpe diem sees the day, but carpe is how I do my stories. Carpe stands for curiosity, appreciation, reflection, perspective, and experience. I'll give you an example. And I use this in my TEDx speech. But the whole idea behind it is what's taking something ordinary and making it extraordinary. So I remember I was walking to the university. The door was there. It's propped open with a wooden wedge doorstop. And I mean, how many times have we walked into a building or walked through a door and there's a wooden wedge doorstop just holding it open? But I stopped. There's the curiosity. Something stopped me. And I was looking at this doorstop. And then the A kicked in, which is appreciation. I'm appreciating it for more than what it is. It's more than just this wooden wedge doorstop. There's something here. So I started standing there and reflecting. That's adding purpose and meaning to it, to say, okay, I'm, I'm here, this, I'm present, I'm trying to experience this, and reflecting on this doorstop. And then I can just imagine the people in the offices around looking at this person who's standing at the doorway, looking at this doorstop, wondering, is he okay? Like, what's going on with him? And then the perspectives kick in because of my history and the things that resonate with me. And it suddenly clicked. That doorstop, ordinary, it holds a door open. But then through this carpet, and the E I'll share with you in a sec, is it reminded me, the doorstop holds the door open. But it's also reflective of the people who have helped me in my journey, who have held the door open so I could open it and go through it. And it was an honor piece 
to all the people in my life that have held the door open for me, that have been the doorstops in my life. And in order to capture it, that's the E, which is experience. I needed to make this into an experience. And now it's cataloged as a story. If you don't catalog these things as experiences, your story will die an untimely death. So that's an example of how in that TEDx speech about discovering the extraordinary in the ordinary and building into a story, how you can take a wooden wedge doorstop and making it into something much more meaningful. And later on, if we have time, I'll share how a puzzle piece, I've given about 5,000 pieces in the world to remind people about connectedness, how an hourglass represents our time and uh, not just our time, but our life. And all of these things are discovering that extraordinary in the ordinary. It's so serene hearing you speak about that particular topic, about the wedge piece. And I want to paint a picture for our audience, Mm -hmm. right? If you're watching this TEDx talk, right, he comes on the stage and he starts reaching in his pockets and he's pulling out a pen and he's saying how ordinary the pen is. He pulls out a glass and he's like, how ordinary the glasses. And then out of nowhere, he pulls out a wooden doorstop. So, so to the audience, it's kind of like, why the hell is this man pulling out a wooden doorstop? But he just told you the story behind that. So imagine visually seeing this story being unfolded in front of you. It kind of tells you the power of his storytelling goes to a little bit deeper level than just painting a picture. So first of all, great story. I definitely appreciate the articulation of it. It, it was a phenomenal story that the first time I heard it, and hearing it again through this podcast. So Taking that, right, like you tell stories. Mm -hmm. So how do you help your clients with their storytelling? Well, everybody has a story. And the signature tagline that I just, I live by is everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. It's not a challenge to go and do dangerous things, but it's more of a challenge to say, you have to start capturing your stories, your narrative. We are all living stories. But the challenge is people are either afraid of of sharing their stories. They're like, well, it's not important. Or they're afraid to put it out there. And I remember in the first book I wrote, which was on personal storytelling, I wrote a piece that said, there's fear in me in writing this book because of what people may think. The bigger fear is, what if I don't write this book? And that to me was the essence of why I wrote that first book on storytelling is to help individuals start telling their narrative, start telling their journey and their story. I mean, when I sit down and have a conversation with somebody, I call it story sharing, not storytelling. Storytelling to me is this unilateral pushing of uh, thoughts and ideas to another individual. Story sharing is where I may start out and say, you know, much like how you've been uh, constructing this conversation, and the idea is it's a conversation, is asking those questions, but then you listen and observe. And next thing you know, we're building on each other's stories through experiences. And it becomes a very rich and beautiful story and a rich and beautiful experience. But there, everybody has these stories and most of them are locked away. And it's trying to provide them the, the confidence and the keys to unlock the treasure trove of these experiences. And The other part I think that's really important is people don't journal, people don't capture. And what happens is, you know, you'll have, you go to a job interview and the interviewer will ask you a behavioral situational question. Tell me about a time when you had to work as part of a team and you had a difficult situation emerge. 
Well, we suddenly grasp at whatever is around us, which we just trying to capture. Whereas if you would have journaled, you would be like, oh, let me share with you. And then you can provide a much deeper story. I encourage people to start journaling and it, the journaling doesn't even have to be shared. This is for you. But you'd be amazed at the clarity that comes forward when you start journaling because you're writing it for yourself. You're writing it as descriptors to share with yourself and potentially with other people. But these become the capturing of, of your narratives. I think that, that based upon the philosophy of this conversation and, and the direction it's going and what you've alluded to so far, if our listeners is familiar with the memory palace and you know the memory palace is essentially a memory system that you can kind of articulate by walking through, telling a story, and you're associating objects in a familiar place with a key thing that you need to memorize. Earlier on, Sam was talking about using acronyms, and the acronyms is a form of a memory strategy as well. Yeah. And now he's going into this other sub-story of how to utilize these different things. So I think it's great. I mean, you're an educator, 100% true and true. And I can, I, I can see these different elements coming through to you. So like my next question is like, you have all these different strategies. You, you're like, obviously you're highly astute, right? But let's say you come in contact with someone that's more rebellious against your teaching someone that you're trying mm -hmm. to help educate, but they're more standoffish. Like how, like, here's a better question. What is the yep. worst experience or the worst mm -hmm. example of someone being more negative than positive that you've actually have converted before? Oh, totally. I mean, you know, I always look at it this way and I always tell my students or any audience I speak with, I call it the rule of 15, 70, 15. 15% of the people are going to think I'm the worst instructor ever. 15% mm. are like, oh my gosh, like this person I have to stay connected to because this person is now uh, somebody I need on my journey. Mm. And 70% is in the middle. And it's a spectrum mm. from, man, this was a terrible course, but I picked up a couple of things too. There's a lot here I need to learn. And I think what I always share with people is, you know, as much as as difficult as it is, you never take it personally. You can't, because it's not a matter of, you know, you're you're terrible. It's a matter of you just didn't connect with that person. So, for example, rate my professor. I never go on it. And actually, it's funny. My students will say, "No, no, your rating's good." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, no, it may be fine, but those one or two negative comments, I don't want. I don't need to know about those." And, you know, what I always say is it's not, it's not a matter of this is impacting my ego. Mm -hmm. Those couple of negative comments out of whatever, how many I get, I feel like I let that person down. And it's not this ego thing of like, how dare you say this? And, you know, I'm better than this. No, no. I'm sorry. I feel like I let you down. And that's how I feel every time, you know, there may be a negative review. And it's interesting. I could have a hundred that are positive and one that's negative. I dwell on the one and it's like, you know, I wish you would have come and seen me in office hours. I wish you would have uh, told me that you were struggling and what could I have done to make this better? And throughout the semester, I tell my students, if you aren't enjoying this class, if you aren't enjoying the experience or there's something I'm doing that isn't what you think it should be, well, you know, what can I do to improve? I mean, and to your question, I mean, I had one situation where, you know, it was a class of, I think, about 250 students. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I got this email from one of my students saying, Sam, I just wanted you to know that one student in class has real big complaints about the, your teaching style and is taking it to the dean of business. But he never, but that student never reached out to me or never told me. He basically blanked me out on the email to the entire class. Mm -hmm. But now I'm getting emails from students going like, Sam, like, you know, are you kidding me? Like this uh, person is saying this and I will step forward and go to the dean and say the opposite that, you know, you're, you're doing a good job of teaching and this and this and that. Well, it, the person was a, you know, it, there's, it, they have all the rights to do this. And it was interesting because the dean of business or the associate dean reached out to me saying, Sam, I got this note. And what was really interesting is when I found out that this person had done this, and he sent me a separate note about something else. And I replied back. He wanted me to review his group paper or whatever. And I said, no, no, I'm happy to do a review. But I said at the same time, please understand your mark could either go up, stay the same, or potentially go down. But I would never lower it just for the sake of it and all that. But I also understand this is what's going on. Like you've made a complaint against me. Please note that I'm not a punitive person. And I that's separate and please take that forward if that's the case but uh just wanting to let you know and he replied back i'm so sorry i did that I, I mean i shouldn't have i should have come to you so he acknowledged it he said sam this course is really important to me because i if i de decide to go to graduate school i need a good mark and uh then we started talking and i said well let me help you with your personal statement so we sat down and i was working with him on building this uh, rock solid personal statement and he never brought up about the marks or anything like that because we had moved in a different direction. Uh -huh. And I wasn't avoiding that situation. I just thought, okay, we're moving on to a new part, which is let's get him a really good statement. Uh -huh. He still went and complained to the dean, uh, the associate dean. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, here you stabbed me in the back, even though I was helping you. And yet you still went and did this. And I, I mean, that's a situation where I said, I tried to do what I could. Uh -huh. And I, I wasn't going to go and make a negative statement against him or anything like that. It's just, I'm sorry, uh, you know, in the future, you better be cautious on how you move forward because you're going to burn bridges. And, you know, I'm here to give references. I'm here to support and help. Do you really want to burn this bridge? But that's an example of, I think, uh, going back to what you said, in that little captured story there is number one don't fly off the handle when something bad happens like that like if somebody feels like that uh, it's common to internalize it mm -hmm. but equally at the same time don't fly off the handle and get agitated and angry against that person oh. second part i think is uh, try to understand and empathize with that person like okay why would they be like that or any number of things that may impact that person you don't know what they're going through and that's fine as well but uh and the final thing i would add in there is the fact that you know it's also all about this need of you know still trying to help to a certain point you don't want to go overboard but equally you don't want to punish somebody because they made a mistake um so those are three things that i would say impacts and from either an educating standpoint or a managerial standpoint those are the, the the markers that i would use 
Very nice. Very nice. So, I mean, obviously, to, to the listening audience right now, you can obviously see why I've deemed him to be the, the community do-gooder, right? Even in the face of someone being an asshole, he was still trying to figure out the positive out of this guy's glass always have full. So, on this journey, right? So, you've been a professor, you've been a speaker, a writer, a writer, an author, all these different things for a period of time. Mm-hmm. But how long did it take you to get to where you are? How long have you been on this journey? Right. You know, that's a really good question because I had the traditional corporate pathway and, you know, graduating university. And to your listeners, what I would always say is the times when I was thinking about what I wanted to do and what I was doing didn't work, didn't fit. The moment I switched to who, who am I, clarity happened. And it was interesting because, I mean, I graduated from university with a degree in business and political science. And, you know, you walk across the stage with this idea of, okay, who's lucky to get me? Because business and political science, what a killer combination. And I walked off the stage and a virtual door slammed behind me, but there was no handle to it. And the virtual door, everything behind it was familiar to me. My class schedule, my friends, the structure of the university environment, everything. And I thought, okay, I'm going to start applying for jobs. So Back then, we had to write letters or type letters, hand-delivered or pop it in the mail. And I sent out 12 in a short time. Mm-hmm. And I sat there going like, okay, 12 are out there. Which one of you is going to be lucky to get me? Mm-hmm. Well, two weeks later, a letter arrived. And it was from a company that said, well, thank you for applying. We don't have a job, but good luck. And I thought, okay, no worries. I've still got 11 letters out there. But you know what? Today, I'm going to send three more to different companies. Mm-hmm it started to become the tide. The more letters I sent out, the more letters started to come back. Mm-hmm. What I have are, it's almost like a size of a brick. 86, nice. re- 86 rejection letters from companies who said, we don't have a job for you, good luck. Actually, we're not sure what you're looking for. And the reason for these 86 rejection letters that are literally shaped in the size of a brick, feels about that heavy too, is I didn't know who I was. I was on the pathway of what I wanted to do. And I always share with people the fact that it wasn't a matter of who's lucky to get me. Am I lucky to get a job? And finally, a job emerged. And think of it, business and political science, entry-level government work, amazing. That's what I got. My first job was mopping floors and emptying rubbish bins as a janitor in a hospital because that's government work. And I just remember going into this and I told myself, it's not poor me. I said, there's three valuable lessons that I actually pulled from this that still carries me to who I am today. The first lesson, my father said, I don't care what you do. You put the best foot forward and you do the best job that you can do. There is no floor cleaner than at the end of my shift. And you know, there was no rubbish bin left full. And that carries me to even today where I put tremendous effort in anything I do. The second valuable lesson, I would get on the elevator with nurses, doctors, administrators. And there were times where I would be ignored because I'm a janitor. I have nothing in common with these individuals. I know what this feels like. I will never ignore anybody. I will listen to what people have to say because I never want them to feel how I felt. And the third valuable lesson, I have a degree on my wall and people telling me I wasted my time. Well, 
Instead of that, I went into this position to say, what am I going to learn as a result of being here? And instead of going into a mode of just cleaning, I went into a mode of learning. And it made me realize in anything that I do in life, there are lessons to be pulled. Don't look at the problem, look at the opportunities and learn from these experiences. And what's really interesting is those three have carried me to today. And I look at those letters and two things emerge. Number one, if one of those letters would have materialized, my life would have gone in a different trajectory and I would not be with you today. The second part, many of these companies no longer exist. I still do. I outlasted these companies. We are more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. But the idea is that anything that we are doing, what are we learning? What are we pulling from it that's helping us move forward? And I think it was around, okay, so then eventually I got into a corporate job. I could do it, but it just didn't fit right, but I could do it. And it, that's, it was all about the what. And you explain, or we talk about ourselves in the what we do, but we're not defined by what we do. But the moment I started focusing on who I wanted to be or who I am, everything started to become more clear because I started with building those five core elements, the five things that make up my foundation. And it took me on a trajectory. It made me realize I was on a train and there's a destination. But once I started focusing on who I am, I suddenly realized I was on the wrong train. I got off at the next station, got on a new train and never looked back and when you hit those five things out of five, and this is where I coach people on discovering those five things that make up their foundation, you don't have a job or career, you hit fulfillment. And that's where we should be. Very nice, very nice. So I mean, with that, using the analogy of the train, and then to say, if this train is passing throughout your life at different stages, and, mm -hmm. and to say you could hop on the right train right now and take that train back to a particular stage, and then you have 60 seconds to speak to yourself, to mm -hmm. tell yourself something that would universally change where you are and make this where you are right now happen a lot faster. Mm -hmm. What would you say to yourself if you had those 30 seconds? That's an easy one for me to answer. It would be, I would say, I'm not going to tell you what happens, but once you start focusing on who you are, things will be fine. Think about who you are. Very interesting. I mean, I, I believe it or not, I don't, I don't think you realize it. Maybe you do, but you're like a philosopher in a lot of different ways, right? Like, you, like even with the time traveling opportunity, someone would say, do this or trade mm -hmm. this stock. And you're just telling yourself to stay on the path that you are, but focus more on the inner you versus the outer you, which is definitely a very powerful statement. Mm -hmm. So I think you brought up your dad a little bit earlier. Yeah. So on your entrepreneurial journey, right? Like you mm -hmm. have business background, you have an entrepreneurial sense about you. Did that come from any past family members or your dad or your mom entrepreneurs while you were growing up? No, actually, uh, both my parents, traditional corporate job, uh, you know, go down that pathway. And it was interesting because when I decided to take a career leap and leave a corporate job, safety and security, great uh, you know, great wages, great benefits, pension, stability, you love your job, it's government work, you're set for life. Uh. 
my father was one of the first to basically say, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. Because, you know, his was more of that immigrant mentality of, you're in, like, this is gold, stay. Like, you don't have a job if you leave. But uh, the company I was working for, they treated me really well. Every single company I've been with have treated me really well. And they offered a buyout to every single employee. They needed 850 people out of 6,000 to leave. And I looked at this and there were two words that resonated. And think of it this way. Here's somebody who loves their job. Comfort was one of the words. And this goes back to my parents because comfort is what people strive towards. Comfort is what society wants you to gain. Comfort is what immigrants really strive towards. But here's the problem with comfort. You stop growing as an individual and I stopped growing. And the second word was uncertainty. By staying, there's uncertainty because, you know what, they could move me where they want with 850 people out of 6,000. There's uncertainty by leaving. I don't have a job. If I leave, I've got a severance package. But you know what? It made me realize I control my uncertainty. Nobody else does. And I clicked the button, set in motion that I'm leaving the corporation. And everybody said, 100% of the people said you've made the biggest mistake of your life. Well, here's the thing. A month and a half later, I went in. I said, there's two jobs I think are two companies I think I would really like to work for. One is the university. And the second one was working on the Vancouver 2010 Olympic Bid Committee. In other words, Vancouver hosted the 2010 Winter Olympics. I thought, oh, the bid would be really cool to get the games to Vancouver. Well, three, uh, sorry, I went in on a Wednesday, closing date Friday. Three interviews later, I'm working on the Olympic bid to get the games to Vancouver and working on one of the most amazing projects. And then after that, I thought, okay, I'm starting to, after seven months vacation, because it wiped me out. I was like, time to look around for work and then, you know, applied to the university at numerous times. And then my director of communications on the Olympic bid committee said, you know, just hire this guy. He's only going to work for us and he's only going to work for you. And he's worked for us. He's not going to stop. And uh, then eventually the university hired me. The entrepreneurial spirit, I think, was awoken when I realized those five key things, because I realized Having someone impose those on me doesn't work. Having that work as where I work towards it, that works. And when I was on the Olympic bid committee or Simon Fraser University, they allowed me to be an intrapreneur. And an intrapreneur means here's a structured organization. Here's a budget. Do what you think you need to do. And they let me be entrepreneurial. And that ignited that. And then people started saying, well, you know, after the TEDx, you should write a book. And then, you you know, I, I found people coming to my doorway. So mentoring and coaching emerged. And uh, then also built out a nonprofit that's gone nationwide. Uh, all of these things emerged as a result of that shift to who. And I think that's what ignited this entrepreneurial spirit. Hmm. Very interesting. Hmm. Again, I mean, great story as well. So with that, right, I mean... It seems like you've had multiple different opportunities that were presented mm-hmm. to themselves and you seize those opportunities. Yeah. But but let's talk about like your family life a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So on this journey with these opportunities and you're juggling these different things and you're taking a package and you're leveraging the package and then you're going to work for a university, how do you currently juggle like your work life with your family life? Yeah. Well, actually, it, what what's amazing is 
the clarity that comes forward by finding out who you are. Because even though I've got multiple projects on the go, they're not distinct and separate. They actually all uh, relate to each other. They uh, blend together. So my writing impacts my speaking, which impacts my teaching, which impacts you know, the mentorship and coaching I do. So they're, they're all sort of out there. But the benefit here is I create my own schedule. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the one solid piece I know that's in my schedule is when I teach my class. So, you know, and the rest of it, I build according to what makes sense. So I, if I feel like, okay, you know what, I'm going to take Friday off. I just don't book anything on Fridays. And then I spend time with my kids or, uh, uh, you know, with uh, the family and uh, go and see my parents as well. The idea, though, is that, you know, when you have that freedom, you're able to, you know, build accordingly. Now, as an entrepreneur, that's a challenge because you are 24 seven. But that also enables you the opportunity to carve out something that makes it more unique in that regard. So those are those are the ways that I would say that, you know, to balance. And the other thing I would say that's really important, and this is for your audience as well, is what is your outlet? So for me, my outlet is either writing or woodworking. Now, woodworking has nothing to do with any of the things I'm technically working on. Uh-huh. But actually, it has a lot to do with what I'm working on. Because when I'm out there uh, woodworking for two, three hours, I've released everything in my mind about work. And I'm either sanding for two hours or uh, visioning what I want this to be. But all of a sudden, the ideas are popping in my mind of how to tackle this and how to tackle that because I've separated myself and my mind from the everyday. I highly encourage your listeners to find an outlet. For me, it's woodworking. Hey, it could be going for a walk. It could be yoga, could be dancing, could be cooking. Anything that releases you from your commitments is really going to be beneficial for you because it will help you realize and reach into parts of your mind that you had never even really thought about. But that's also sometimes where those solutions to those problems emerge because you've released your mind. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, that leads me into another question. You're talking about releasing your mind. You're talking about segmenting your, your particular day and having a schedule set up to where you can actually have a time to release. So let's rewind that back. What does your early morning or your morning habits look like? What are your morning routines? Up at 6.30 in the morning, brush my teeth, uh, uh, make my morning cup of tea, and then come down and then, you know, just check emails and uh, any work that needs to be done uh, that, uh, you know, may have emerged overnight, uh, you know, but then also go in and, uh, you know, tap in and see what's going on. And, uh, you know, whether it's maybe I was just this morning writing a blog post on mentorship and coaching. Uh, So, you know, just finding those routines, because what I find is I'm an extreme extrovert. But if especially during the summer break, my family might be up around eight o'clock, nine o'clock. That buys me about maybe two hours of quiet time. And that I cherish those two hours. So as much as I'm an extreme extrovert, mm-hmm. those two hours are really important to me. And even probably the last maybe 
uh, two hours, latter part of my evening, but then I like to save the last hour to hang out with my boys again and uh, maybe watch something together. Uh, we might go play basketball outside during the daytime and things like that, but the flexibility, but there's this, it's a routine, but it's also a flexible routine. But yeah, I, I'm an early riser, even on weekends and stat holidays, I don't even set an alarm. I'm like, great, I can try to sleep in here, but at 6.30, eyes open wide, and you're like, I can lay here and look at the ceiling, or I can get up and maybe do some magic today. Nice, nice. So, I mean, just listening to you speak, I mean, obviously, you're, you're highly educated. You're, you're very astute. You understand, like, the, the art of storytelling, which is definitely an art if people don't really realize. It's an art form to telling a story and taking people on a journey with you. So my next question is a three-part question, right? Uh, obviously, I think this is more of a learned behavior than something you just wake up with on a random Tuesday, right? Um, so what books have you read in your beginning stages to get you to where you are? Second part to this question is like, what books are you actively reading right now? And the third part to this question, let's dive a little bit more into what books have you written so far? Sure. Uh, so, you know, with regards to all this commitment and, and involvement, <clears throat> I find that it, it's trying to get into a book and read. It sometimes is a bit difficult. And I find that uh, I'm drawn to books in the past and present. So some of them... If they're books on uh, like nonfiction type of books on leadership or uh, any aspects, I find that they have to grab my attention. I'm not looking for those uh, technical data driven types of books. I mean, things like um, I read uh, The Storyteller's Secret by Gallo or Chris Anderson's Ted, Speak Like Ted. Like what I loved about those books were it just confirm that, yeah, I'm doing all the right things on storytelling and speaking and resonate about how to build presentations. The other genre that I really like, there's two. One is uh, travel memoirs, okay? Uh, you know, adventures and people going on these adventures. And the second one that uh, resonates for me are fiction books that take place in exotic places around the world, like India or Afghanistan or Thailand, mainly because I love travel. Um, and, you know, that's something I, I desperately am looking forward to in the future when I move forward. And uh, out of COVID is going back to my travel aspects, because traveling to me uh, ignites this whole aspect of understanding people, understanding cultures. Uh, but when I read these books, especially places I've traveled, I can visualize it. I can see what's going on here. Uh, with regards to the books that I've written, the first one was uh, on personal storytelling out of my first TEDx speech, discover the extraordinary in the ordinary and, you know, using that carpe principle. And the second book is my memoir about my journey to India to find my ancestral roots, lost and found, seeking the past and finding myself. I am looking at uh, working uh, with a co-author right now on a, it's a children's book, but it's geared to adults in corporate world on leadership and followership. And, you know, there's probably more types of books within me, but Lost and Found, the book about India is what I call my magnum opus. It is my masterpiece. It's my work that I don't, it doesn't matter how many books I write. I don't think anyone, any book will ever supersede this uh, 
this book. Very, very interesting. I mean, on that journey to India, I mean, I think beforehand you didn't understand or knew the, like yeah. how to speak Hindi, but you learned to speak Hindi on that trip. Is that correct? Well, uh, I, I'm conversational and it actually, I picked it up from my grandmother because when she moved from Fiji, she spoke very little English. Mm. I spoke very little Hindi. How do you communicate? Well, you have to talk to each other. And she taught me Hindi. I taught her English. And as a result of this, uh, I started getting more and more exposed to it. I'm, I'm conversational now, but I mean, still, when I go to India or I'm in the presence of people that speak proper Hindi, I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, they're laughing at me because of the way I speak, you know, and I mean, hey, it's okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being conscious of it. I just know that to communicate, you know what, if you try the, the effort and, and do and try to speak it, people definitely go out of their way. Interesting. So, I mean, I would say, I mean, I think you're telling this, this great story of like your timeline, right? Let's say future timeline. Where do you see yourself 20 years from today? Well, 20 years from now, I think I'm going to keep looking back and saying, you know what? I've spent many years building very strong relationships with individuals, helping them in their journey. Uh, I mean, 17 years at the university, and I've been mentoring, well, probably about 20, 25 years now. Mm. I'm still connected to those people, and it's amazing to see where they've gone in life. For me, I think it's, it's going to be one of those things of I'll continue to write, continue to speak. Education, we'll see how long that, uh, you know, I'll be out there teaching my classes. Mm. Uh, and part of the reason being is, you know, uh, you see, I mean, I appreciate the, what you said that, you know, you seem, you know, well-educated. Mm. I always say that there's a difference here in that there's knowledge, which is pure out of the textbook experience and theories. I don't just sit in the world of knowledge of theories and practice. I put it in practice. I want to see and apply this. I want my students to pull this and call it wisdom. Wisdom is that application piece. People can have knowledge, but lack wisdom. But I, I'm telling my students, Here's the theories. Now go and see if it works in society. But I think in the future, it'd just be carrying on doing exactly what I'm doing right now. Traveling, uh, writing, speaking, educating, mentorship and coaching. I think because it's really been this who I am and it resonates. And that's also working with nonprofits. I was just off the phone yesterday with a nonprofit in uh, Nepal and uh, it's it's a very hardship situation in Nepal and uh, school there. I'm going to see how what I can do to help SMD school thrive because you know, no matter what happens, they're faced with so many challenges, but they still persevere. There's resilience here, and I'm going to be creating a like working with a couple of people to create a sustainable package for that school, but. Here's the thing. Uh, these are the things that I'm just going to carry on doing no matter what. Nice. Never to be a bystander in life. Wow. Serious. I'm just, I'm just listening to, to like that statement. I mean, that's, it's kind of like a Hallmark card. It's also like a quote that you can live by. And it's also one of those things that if it pops up and you're having a negative day, you can kind of turn your negative day into a positive light really quickly. So yeah. going into like the, these powerful words that, that, that you're observing, right? If I'm a student in your class, and I think you've been down this road before, and you probably have something in the back of your mind, you could just spit it out. 
and I'm having a hard time figuring out what direction I want to go and who am I now versus who am I becoming and what is my journey going to look like? What words of wisdom would you give yeah. to that individual to help them move forward? Actually, in my class, I make every single student write a personal statement twice in the beginning of the semester and at the end. In fact, they just submitted it because, again, and I tell them, I don't want a running resume. If you and I meet for the first time, how are you going to introduce yourself? And then we talk a lot about this personal branding piece. I'm going to share with you this one analogy, or it's actually two analogies. It's a puzzle piece. So I carry with me puzzle pieces. <clears throat> the one analogy is um, individuals are trying to solve their life puzzles. They want to know what their life holds and what the future is going to be. And I tell them, if I dropped a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle on your table, but I left with the box cover. What are you building? And they're like, oh, I said, the puzzle is your life. The box cover is your life, but the completed life is the cover, but I've taken that away. What are you building? And they're like, I have no idea. Now the mind wants to take 5,000 pieces, throw it way up in the air, and hopefully it bounces into place when it lands and the, the picture's complete, but we know puzzles don't work like that. You're going to have to build it piece by piece, section by section. So let's say you've got this mound of puzzle pieces and you suddenly find pieces of a chimney door and a window. And you're like, wait, I think there's a house here. So you start pulling pieces that look like a house. Halfway through building the house, you suddenly turn a piece over and you're like, oh, wait, is that a porthole? Wait, but I think I also see part of a mast and I see part of a, uh, an anchor. The house isn't finished. And now you're building a ship. Halfway through building the ship, you suddenly find a piece of a car and now you start building a car, but the house and the, and the ship are not, uh, they're not complete. Everything is in segments and sections. And I tell my students, instead of trying to solve your life puzzle, I show them a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle. And I said, but what you need to do is find that single piece that connects the sections together. If you've ever built a jigsaw puzzle and you've got them in different parts and areas, you sometimes will find that one piece that just pulls two sections together. Those are the people, the stories, and experiences. That's what I need you to search and find, are those single pieces that are going to start to make sense in your life puzzle. That's one. So I said, don't rush the process. Because you, you can't sit back and let the universe come to you because of what I've said. That's irresponsible. But you also can't solve your life puzzle, but seek out those individual pieces. The other analogy I share, which is very powerful, I've given about 5,000 pieces of a jigsaw puzzle out to date. I always say, if I was to give you a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle, what can you do with one piece? Not much. It's one piece. And you're looking at it going like, well, okay, what can I do with one piece? It's ordinary. But right before your eyes, I'm going to make it extraordinary. I'm going to transform it. Because instead of looking at the single jigsaw puzzle piece, I'm holding up a satchel with puzzle pieces in it. If I give you a piece of my jigsaw puzzle, do you realize my puzzle is permanently incomplete without you? Do you realize how important you are to me? I can't finish it without you. And all of a sudden I've transformed it to extraordinary. And I actually physically can see the transformation on people's faces because they get this. They suddenly realize that they are very important to me. And I've had people tell me it's taped to their mirror and every morning they wake up, someone told them that they were important, that they matter. 
It's traveled the world in backpacks. And people tell me, you know what, I'm in Bangkok right now. And Sam, guess what? Here's your puzzle piece with me. Uh, it's in curio boxes. It's in wallets. And they see me at events and they share this. I give this out in my class at the last lecture, which is next week. Unfortunately, it's virtual, but many of them will approach me to ask for it. But after I finish a live lecture in person, and I'm packing my stuff away, students have lined up shake my hand and get a piece of the jigsaw puzzle. I think, you know, from a student perspective, sharing who they are and equally realizing they're part of something much bigger, such as this puzzle analogy, helps them to gain the strengths to say, I have someone in my corner. I have someone who's not gonna let me fall. It enables me to start gaining some confidence, to start building my wings, and start moving forward because I'm trying to figure out who I am. And I encourage your audience members to do that as well, to start figuring out who they are. And the way I do this is I say, you know, tell me about the jobs you've got. What do you like about them and don't like about it? But tell me why you don't like it or why you like it. What about classes you did? Which ones do you like and don't like, but why? What do you do in your spare time? Why? And you start coming up with some words and terms. For example, I was working with somebody in Los Angeles and you know, we were talking about this and she said, you know, the environment is really important to me. And uh, you know, it, I don't want to be this, what you call bystander in life. And I said, okay, so you're an environmental ninja. And she was like, oh my gosh, that's what I am. So she's an environmental ninja. Or when you pick your words, Oftentimes people will be like, one of the things I'm not willing to compromise, family. So, okay, tell me why is family important to you? Well, it's, you know, the relationships I have with not just my immediate family, but my extended family, the connectedness I feel. So I said, okay, is relationship and connectedness also important in your work environment? Absolutely. What about in school if you're a student? Absolutely. So I said, let's replace family with relationships and connectedness as one of your five. And they're like, because family is part of it. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it. And people are fearful because I'm making you pick words. What if it's not the right word? You know what? There's no wrong word. You can change this, but you got to lay down a foundation. But the idea is now you laid down the foundation and you can stick your head up and say, okay, now I know the direction I need to go. And let's say you now, as you gain other experiences and things, Change your words at any time in your life. You can change the words. I've changed my words. So it's, a, it's something that is ever-growing, ever-evolving, just like we are. But the clarity starts to come forward. So I just wanted to share those couple of things with you. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely powerful. I mean, it's, it's, it kind of goes back to the original conversation we were talking about figuring out your identity, being that you're you yeah. know, Canadian, but you, know, you have a Hindi background, yeah. Fiji background. But it doesn't really matter what background you come from is, is that you're one piece of a bigger puzzle and that you're important and that all these pieces will eventually connect sooner or later. Yeah. So it's definitely very powerful. So, I mean, with that, I mean, that's a hell of a, of a statement. I mean, how do people get in contact with you? I mean, how do they find you online? Well, I mean, easiest way is uh, my website. It's straightforward. It's just www.sam-thiara, my last name, T-H-I-A-R-A.com. And you'll be able to find my blog posts. I think there's about 180 blog posts about these life experiences and things to help people, all free. 
uh, any books or speaking or anything that's there, it's there. Plus, uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Nice. nice. So, I mean, we're, we're going to go into to a couple bonus questions. And I think your answer for this next question would be very interesting. So outside of your family, what is your most significant achievement to date? I would say for 11 years, playing in a military pipe band and not being a drummer to start with, you know, an Irish military pipe band. And, you know, and I still remember my, the pipe major is a dear friend of mine because he knew I had never drummed before, but he, he said, come to the practice. And I went on the practice on a Tuesday and afterwards, you know, he taught me basic things, but he said, you know, the drumming we can teach you commitment. I can't, is this something that really you think you would be willing to do? And I said, listen, uh, my friend's name is Gord. I said, Gord, if this means we can hang out and, you know, we have more time to spend together, uh, this is something I'd like to do. So that was on Tuesday. On Friday, he took, to, took me to the military regimental hall, got me kitted out with the uniform and the drum. He says, there you go, you're all set. And he said, okay, now we're going to go march in, in front of the entire regiment. You're going to drum and we're going to play our bagpipes and stuff. And I was like, what do you mean? I, I don't even know what I'm doing. He goes, anytime we take a step, hit the drum. And thankfully, you're not the person in the front who has to guide us. And I said, perfect. And that, I, I don't know, it was one of those things that made me realize that I thrive in uncertainty and ambiguity. I love of that space to be thrown into it, to try to figure things out. If I can't, I'm going to find people to support me. But uh, that, that to me was quite an accomplishment. Very interesting. So I got another one for you. Right. And I think like, like going off of that one, I think that the answer to this one probably would be very interesting. Okay. If you could spend 24 hours with anyone dead or alive, mm -hmm. uninterrupted for those 24 mm -hmm. hours, who would it be and why? Mm -hmm. It would be Anthony Bourdain. And there's a reason why I appreciated his rawness, his storytelling methods and mechanisms, but just his, authenticity is something that is I find lacking it wasn't so much his you know need to swear and you know for television and all that I think that was just authentic I think just being able to sit with him for 24 hours to you know sit down and have different meals with him to be able to see the world through his eyes because he's been an influence in me in my travels because it made me realize I'm not a tourist I'm a traveler. A traveler wants to experience. A tourist just wants to see. But I embrace it. And I think that he would be such an engaging, interesting conversation. Hmm. Um, so that's who I would like to meet. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Bourdain, he's, um, it's so beautiful that uh, you brought him up. Because when you look at like who he is and what he created and what he's done for like food and travel, yeah. like anybody, anyone would want to become him. And mm -hmm. to see that he kind of removed himself when the world wants to be him, it kind of really shines a light on like what you were saying earlier. It's about finding out who you really are as a person and an individual instead of trying to search for these answers, become the answer right. yourself. Um, well, and, and I was just going to add to that as well is he exposed the world to us mm -hmm. in both its magnificence 
and in its challenges. And I'll just quickly read this. It's a very short quote, but it's the one that I started in my book by Anthony Bourdain. Travel isn't always pretty. It isn't always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. It even breaks your heart. But that's okay. The journey changes you. It should change you. It leaves marks on your memory, on your consciousness, on your heart, and on your body. You take something with you. Hopefully, you leave something good behind. I mean, what a powerful quote, quote by him. And, and, and he did that. I mean, he lived up mm -hmm. to that quote, especially by leaving behind the legacy that he's left behind. I mean, it's two different demographics. It's foodies and world travelers. And he's, he's united both those different demographics. So going into closing, man, I, I think since you're yeah. an avid speaker, I like to, you know, give whoever I'm interviewing an opportunity to grab the microphone and to become the host. Do you have any questions that you would like to ask me? Well, I mean, I would just like to say that through this conversation, and that's what this was, it was a beautiful conversation and the uh, opportunity to share with each other. Uh, I hope that there's an opportunity. It's more of a statement to say that uh, we can remain connected and uh, the opportunity to share stories, even offline, um, you know, would love to hear more about uh, what makes up who you are and uh, just the journey that you're on. Uh, it's more of a comment over a statement or, or uh, over a question. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely embrace that. I mean, I think you're one hell of a guest, but I think you're more so a greater person and individual. And just the way you storytell is not storytelling with the essential of a sales purpose behind it. You're storytelling your life for people to then embrace and live their lives. And just by doing that, I, I definitely, if, the first time I see you, I'm, I'm going to see you in person sooner or later. It's going to happen, right? I'm, first of all, I'm going to give you a hug and say thank you, right? Because, I mean, obviously this entire conversation was hell of enlightening, hell of embracing as well. So I just want to say thank you for taking time out your busy schedule today to be on the show and giving all the nuggets and all the jewels that you delivered today. No, and you know what? I don't, uh, I don't uh, find time. I make time because your time is valuable. My time's valuable. Your listener's time's valuable. We need to make time for each other. And just sometimes it's just a matter of just sitting down and having that conversation and sharing with each other because that's how we break barriers. That's how we better have understanding of acceptance of each other in the world. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think on that note, we're going to close out this episode. Once again, the man is soon to be a legend. If he's not already my man, Sam, man, S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss Uncaged are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.